On the same day that he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship, the Reverend Dr. William Barber II was arrested. The North Carolina-based pastor was in Chicago, organizing a protest for workers' rights. And Barber has now been arrested during protests at least 15 times, which may be just one reason he's been compared to Martin Luther King Jr., another Southern pastor who fought for many of the same issues Barber is fighting for 50 years later. Welcome to The Reckon Interview. I'm your host, John Hammontree, and today we're talking with Reverend Barber about how he and others have picked up the mantle of civil rights leadership and are launching a new Poor People's Campaign. We recorded this interview in Selma during the anniversary of the Bloody Sunday March from Selma to Montgomery, and in a sign of the times, we recorded our conversation in an empty classroom at a community college named for one of King's chief adversaries, George Wallace. Barber's a preacher, and at times his answers to my questions may feel a little like sermons. But we go into what's changed in the five decades since King was assassinated, whether white and black Christians in the South are worshiping the same God, the fight for voting rights today, and how he succeeded in creating a multiracial coalition that has won battles with both political parties in North Carolina. So sit back and let the Reverend William Barber take you to church on this episode of The Reckon Interview. Uh, well, Reverend Dr. Barber, thanks for chatting with us on the Reckon interview. To get started, uh, you've obviously been called by many people, including Dr. Cornell West, a, a modern Martin Luther King Jr. And now that we are here in Selma on the weekend of the Jubilee, uh, 50 years after the march, uh, I, I want to know what's changed. And as you are relaunching a poor people's campaign, what has changed since Dr. King was here and what still needs to be changed? Well, let me just say that I pray and hope that all of us recognize that whether it's Martin Luther King or Miss Boyington or Fannie Lou Hamer or Omega Evers and so forth and so on, uh, we all need to be them and even more in the present time. We can't merely commemorate their lives. We must imitate their lives. And you know, we need to um, all in some sense uh, pick up the pieces of their lives and not celebrate uh, but imitate. Um, I often say that the way you honor a martyr is not simply to commemorate where they died or what they did. It is to go to the place where they were finishing their work because to martyr means the work wasn't finished. It means the work was ended. Their work was ended by death. So you go to the place they died, reach down in the blood, pick up the baton and carry it the, the next mile of the way. So where are we? On the one hand, in America, we have seen some tremendous progress. We have more African-Americans now in the United States Congress than we had in the 60s and probably in the history of this country. We've seen an African-American be elected president of the United States. In my own state, we now have two African-American women sitting on the state Supreme Court and an African-American woman as the chief justice, unthought of 10 years ago, let alone 50. But we must remember that the movement was assassinated. When Dr. King was killed, he was working on three interlocking injustices, racism, militarism, and poverty, and was saying you cannot address one without addressing the other. That work was not finished. He was killed. And instead of us going forward, we went backwards. After his death in 68, then Kennedy's death uh, also in 68, uh, Richard Nixon, became president through something called the Southern Strategy, picked up from George Wallace. That strategy was a political strategy to divide black poor folk and white poor folk, one from another, all across the South, 
in order to control the electoral college votes of the South, which if you do in the form of 13 states, is somewhere in the neighborhood of 176. And Kevin Phillips said to him, if we do this, we can control the country. Um, they, they developed a new way of dealing with racism and promoting fear. They didn't talk about the N-word. They talked about tax cuts and states' rights and forced busing and prayer in the school and being against gay people and, and gun rights all became kind of new, new code words. And then policies began to regress, attacks on Brown versus Board of Education, attempt to undermine the Civil Rights Act of 64. Uh, we had seen this before, you know, in the 1800s. We had Reconstruction from 1868 until around the 1870s. And then there was this this reaction called the redemption movement to roll back the gains. So where are we today? 15 million more people in poverty than were when Dr. King was alive telling us to deal with poverty. Why? Because the very programs that were working were demonized, right? And we basically pushed poverty out of the political discussion. We relegated racism many times to a discussion about just something in the past or a few people doing kooky things at a particular time. And, and now people run for office and don't deal with issues of racism and poverty. We had 26 presidential debates in 2016. We have 140 million poor people in this country, poor and low wealth. Almost 60 million of them are white. Almost 30 million uh, poor people are black. Not one debate on poverty. We have the less voting rights today after June 25th, 2013, the Shelby decision. Less voting rights today than we had August 6th, 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was first passed. That's where we are today. For 2,076 days today, the United States Congress has refused to fix the Voting Rights Act. So when you look at systemic racism, when you look at 37 million people out of health care, a third of all the poor people in this country in the South, uh, when you look at the fact that we have ecological devastation, four million families can wake up every morning and buy unleaded gas, can't buy unleaded water. When we look at the billions of dollars we're putting into militarism, and the majority of the soldiers now die from suicide. They're not even dying on the on the battlefield. And the, the average combat soldier comes back, makes less than $35,000 a year, while the average CEO of a defense company makes almost $9 million. When you look at the fact that there's 62 million people in this country work every day for less than a living wage, less than $15 an hour, and 54% of all African-Americans, right? When we look at the fact that we have this Christian nationalism or religious nationalism, that says, despite the fact that Orthodox Christian and religion teaches us where you stand in relationship to the poor, the widows, the children, the broken, the sick, the immigrant, and the imprisoned, they say, if you were for prayer in the school, against a woman's right to choose, against gay people, for guns, or for tax cuts, then that is, quote unquote, a, that is a God-driven agenda, when in fact it's a form of theological malpractice. We have work to do, even as we walk in some of the successes of the past. You, you yourself are a reverend. Uh, Dr. King was a reverend. Uh, and you just talked about theological malpractice. I mean, obviously, when President Obama was in office, there was a large section of the country, particularly in the southeast, that felt that they had a moral and religious calling to stand against what they considered uh, their Caesar. I've heard you speak about uh, Donald Trump as the Caesar that Christians. Well, I talk about what Caesar. I talk about what Caesar did. Caesar was a narcissist. 
and a builder who stood with the 1% over against the 99%, who believed in social Darwinism, the survival of the fittest. That's what Caesar did. And then you look at the policies. And I say, if you look at the policies of Caesar, Caesar um, uh, allowed children to be killed. <laughs> Jesus would have been killed if his parents weren't uh, forced to fleeing and, and being on the run as uh, as immigrants. But that divide that's between, I guess, what you would consider the Christian right coalition mm-hmm. and then obviously a sort of a liberation theology. I mean, it almost seems like people in the South are worshiping two different gods. Well, there was a professor, uh, Professor Long, who did religions, world religions, and he asked the question, if you're on the top of the slave ship as a slave master and you're on the bottom of the slave ship, what do you pray for? Do you pray for the same thing? Do you even pray to the same God? Do you understand God the same way? I would say a little different. I'm First of all, these terms, there's no such thing as Christian right and Christian left. There's no biblical terms. There's no such thing as the white evangelicalism. Uh, I am a conservative Christian. Elaborate on that. What does that mean? I'm a conservative, liberal, Pentecostal, charismatic, biblicist, evangelical. (laughs) That means that I believe in Jesus and the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, we can have a debate if you frame the debate in terms of what people think. But if you go to the Bible, the Bible is real clear. If you go to Isaiah chapter 10, it says, woe unto those who legislate evil, rob the poor of their right and make women and children their prey. If you go to Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel says that when you hurt the immigrant and hurt the poor and hurt the least of the, 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 uh, um, uh, the women and children in policy, then that is, in fact, acting like a ravenous wolf. Jesus said at the beginning of his ministry, he never said the spirit of the Lord is upon me to be in the religious right. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to be the religious. Right. That's not what he said. He said the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And the Greek word there's patokos. It means those who've been made poor by systems of economic uh, disenfranchisement. He said the blind, the sick, the bruised, the the, the hurting. And he said to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, to declare those accepted who other folk push away. Jesus said he was going to judge every nation by how you treat the poor, children, the sick, the left out, the lonely, the prisoner, and the immigrant. So there has always, particularly in the South, been this struggle because, see, some people used religion to endorse slavery, and they said they were following Jesus. Well, they can say that, but that wasn't that ain't true according to the book. So what we've always had, what Frederick Douglass called, is the religion of the slave master versus the religion of Christ. And that's a, still a divide today. Um, a lot of people say this is the religious right position. That's not the question. The question is, does it line up with orthodox teaching in scripture? When people claim to be Christian and they're so loud against gay people and they're so loud for prayer in the school, they're so loud against a woman's right to choose, but so silent on racism and so silent on poverty and so silent on denial of health care. I told one brother, I said, how can you even claim to love Jesus when if Jesus did nothing else, everywhere he went, he gave people free health care. I mean, everywhere he went, he was just healing everybody. He never right. charged a leper a copay. Yeah. So how is it that you claim that being against health care is a Christian right position or any position as far as Christianity. So 
the point is that, that, that as a people of faith, that's why I'm an independent, it's neither about being Democrat or Republican, left versus right. It's about looking very carefully at what text and tradition teach us about where, what the politics of God are and what the politics of Christ are. And those politics have to do with the least of these. And he said, every nation is going to be judged. Problem is in America, we had to create, we often think that the ignorance came after the systems of racism. That's the mythology. The truth is the system comes first. We want slavery. The ignorance didn't follow. So if you want slavery, you got to build a, a theory of economics to support it, what I call evil economics. You got to create bad biology. You have to create a sick sociology that is bad biology. People are born like this. Evil economics, the end justifies the means. Sick sociologists, people aren't supposed to be around each other. But to really make it live, racism and those things, you have to create a heretical ontology. And that is that God intended it that way. So we've had, an, since this country, we've had slave master religion. Then in the 1930s, we had the spiritual mobilization, which a guy said he could, if, if, if he could get the money, he could, he could get enough pulpits to stop preaching the social gospel and start preaching this weird form of, of Calvinism that uh -huh. if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. So if you're good, you're middle class and rich. If you're bad, you're poor. So poverty is a result of personal morality. Therefore, we don't need social security. Interesting. Therefore, we don't need the New Deal. There were people in this in this minister that stood against Dr. King because Dr. King basically was a Southern Baptist preacher. Right. And they would say, call him a meddler. And he would say, no, I'm just I'm just reading the same Bible you read. I'm reading the same Constitution. He said one time, if you call me an extremist, then Jesus was an extremist. Amos was an extremist. Isaiah was an extremist. The, co the Constitution is extreme. So we have this struggle. It's not that we, well, it could be two different gods, but more importantly, what I think is we can't constantly see what I call at the, at the, at best theological malpractice and at worst heresy. When you attempt to use religion on the side of hate and greed and discrimination and racism. Once upon a time, I mean, back when Dr. King was writing a letter from a Birmingham jail and, and books like Why We Can't Wait and his expansion of that idea, the concept of public school being something that could benefit poor whites and poor African-Americans alike was a unifying goal. Since then, since the, the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, you've seen the rise of resegregated school systems built around wealthy zip codes. You've seen the rise of segregation academies or private schools. You were able to build a fusion movement in North Carolina that brought in poor whites, poor African-Americans, poor Latinx people, poor LGBT people. Working class. White working class. Black, white working class. Democrat. Yes. So you've been able to build this movement. What are, what are those unifying traits? Uh, I mean, because this is something that people are trying to do now in New York and people are trying to do now in California, but you were able to do it in a Southern state. What are those unifying traits that were able to bring that fusion together? Well, it's interesting that you bring up the point about education. I want to speak to that for just a second, because a lot of people think that the religious rights primary focus is like abortion. Actually, the beginning Genesis was over schools. Right. School and choice. School choice. That's right. And wanting to have tax credits for segregated schools for those 
who in the name of religion said we ought to still be segregated in our school. Now, of course, I have to say about the South, the first um, protest against the Brown decision was not in the South, it was in New York. Right. And that's a whole nother discussion about, uh, you know, uh, when George Wallace stood in the in the way of the uh, of trying to block people from entering college, he got 100,000 congratulatory letters from the North. That's what inspired him to run for president. Wow. Yeah, that gets left out of the history. He won in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. He almost won in Indiana with three Klansmen in a, in a telephone booth running his campaign. He said it out of his own mouth. He would have won in Maryland, in Maryland if it hadn't been for the black vote. And only thing Richard Nixon and others did when they formed the white Southern strategy is said, how can we be Wallace without sound using the N word without sounding racist? That's a whole nother story. What we did in North Carolina is what Dr. King said in some ways and what happened in the 1800s when black and white people in the South from 1868 came together, poor whites, poor blacks, and changed every state legislature in, in the South and formed fusion coalitions. Uh, we said in North Carolina, we had a regressive legislation governor to come in. In the first 50 days, they denied 500,000 people Medicaid expansion, 360,000 of which were white, but they didn't tell people that. They cut unemployment insurance. They cut a billion dollars from public education. They went after women. They went after gay people. They went after Latino people. And then during Holy Week, they passed a bill in the Senate, Senate Bill 666. Hmm. It was the worst voter suppression bill we had seen since Jim Crow. Then they tabled it. And then in April, they pulled a part of it out and put it in House Bill 87, 587, and passed just the voter ID portion of it, which would have been worse than Alabama voter ID. And we said then, if they were going to be mean enough to attack sick people, poor people, gay people, Latino people, working people, and then also attack and crucify voting rights, that every crucifixion needed a witness, needed a moral witness, not a Democrat or Republican witness, but a moral witness, because some things are not about left versus right, but right versus wrong. So we had been organizing in North Carolina, and I want this on the record, in 2007, we built the Forward Together Moral Movement to challenge Democrats on the issues of poverty and health care and public education and voting rights. This is 2007. And we won in 2007 same-day registration and early voting, which the next year when President Obama ran, he lost the election on election day. He only won because of same-day registration and early voting, which brought students, white, black, Latino, into the voting arena, but we, we 17 of us went in, seven preachers, 10 lay people, two young people, and one lady with cerebral palsy to challenge what the legislature doing with the extremism. And they arrested us, and they arrested this woman in a wheelchair. That was the beginning of Mall Mondays. And then we continued to build. Every week was on issues. We built in a moral fusion way, what we call moral articulation, moral action, moral uh, analysis. We connected the dots. We said, listen, everybody, the same people that's voting for tax cuts for the wealthy are the same people voting against voting rights, are the same people voting against health care, are the same people cutting money for public education. 
And people started to say, what? And then we went we went places. I went to Mitchell County that was 99% white, 89% Republican. Mm-hmm. And we showed them a thousand people up here would have health care. And it can't be black people because no black people up here. Right. And yet you, they, your, your neighbors are being denied health care and dying because of a regressive extremist uh, legislature that sold you on the fact that they were against gay people for prayer in the school and for tax cuts did not even come into you. So do you so, think that they aren't actually for those things, that they're using it as a tactic, or do you think that's just a byproduct? Who? The, the legislators who are saying that... Well, they are for them, but remember the tactic of the, strat- the Southern strategy is always to find out how you can divide people and pit people against one another. So when you ask me, what should we do? The first thing to build in unity is truth. It is not finding the least common denominator. Right. It's telling the truth. And so when, when we move around the country in the Poor People's Campaign, the first map that we put up, I don't care where we are. We can be in Holland County, Kentucky, or we can be in the Delta of Mississippi, or we can be in Appalachia in North Carolina. We put up a series of maps to, to show people. The first map is racism, voter suppression. We don't talk about racism in generalized terms like uh color, I mean, name calling, picture showing, and rudeness. We talk about policies, systems, institutions. And we put a map up there and we show all the states that have the most voter, worst voter suppression since 2010. And we say, now that's racism, right? You want to talk about racism, you got to talk about policy. Then we overlay that map with the states with the worst poverty, not black poverty, poverty. And people will say, Wait a minute, that's my state. We say, mm-hmm. Then we overlay that with the worst child poverty, then the women in poverty, then the worst uh, uh, environmental policies, then the greatest attack on the, on the LGBT community and the Latino community. And at the end of the session, people, we say to folk, if all you knew was that these states had the worst voter suppression laws, you could surmise that they have the worst poverty, the worst wages, what's not. Now, the policies are hurting mostly white people because there's 66 million poor white and low-income white people. There are only about 30 million poor low-income black people, even though that's 66% of the black population. And we say, now, if folk are cynical enough to be together, then we ought to be coming together. And it may not be everybody, but somebody ought to say, we're not going to be played anymore. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be bamboozled anymore. We're going we're gonna to see what's really going on. And guess what? The truth works. Showing people what works. You know, make exposing that tax cuts don't go to working people and poor people. It, they actually go to the wealthy to, to expose that in Alabama, there, there, there are hundreds of thousands of people, that, 400,000 people that would have health care in Alabama. 45% of all Alabamians, for instance, are poor. 1.1 million of them are white. Mm-hmm. So the people that you've been electing with all this voter suppression aren't looking out for you. And it's amazing how people can handle the truth. They can actually handle the truth. They can actually look at racism and classism and, and environmental devastation and the war economy, and they can sit down and understand why they need to be a coalition. And that's what we do everywhere we go, and it works. And what I fear right now when I hear cries for unity, unity, if the cry for unity is louder than the cry for truth, then the unity will be anemic and weak.
because it will actually ask people to deny what is truth just to be together. People don't want that. They don't need that. Mm-hmm. They don't. That's not how you come together. That's not how we come together as a nation. You, we have to tell one the truth. That was the brilliance of Dr. King. He dared to tell the truth. Now, a lot of people didn't want him to tell it. He was a despised man at the end of his life. He, he, people didn't like him, black and white. But he had he knew that the only coalition that can save not a party. It's not the real time. It's not about saving a party, Democrat or Republican. It's about saving the fundamentals of this democracy. And he knew that the only coalition that could do that would be for working class and poor black folk and white folk and Latinos and Asians and natives to come together in a massive coalition that would address three interlocking injustices, racism, poverty, and militarism. We say five, racism, poverty, ecological devastation, healthcare, the war economy and militarism, and the false moral narrative of Christian nationalism. Coming up after the break, Reverend Barber outlines how the fight for voting rights in the South has changed in the last decade. Hey folks, my name is Ike Morgan and we are down in Alabama. Now we're literally down in Alabama covering as much as we can from Lookout Mountain to Mobile Bay and every other corner of the state. And down in Alabama is also the name of our show. We spend three to five minutes daily going over a handful of news and culture stories that are a mix of the top stories and the most overlooked stories and sometimes just the most Alabama stories of the day. Now, there's not a strict definition of the most Alabama stories of the day, but you know them when you see them. So y'all come on by and give us a listen and bring a sense of humor because we try not to take ourselves too seriously. The show is called Down in Alabama and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and most anywhere you listen to your podcasts or through the flash briefing on your Amazon Alexa device. You've mentioned voter ID laws and you mentioned voter suppression, uh, but then in the last 10 years, you've also had a lot of success in turning out larger number of voters in North Carolina in terms of uh, Democrat versus Republican. Uh, But as we saw in 2018, you can turn out more Democrats. It's not necessarily going to result in more elected Democratic officials. And then also we began to see the difference between voter fraud and election fraud, which seemed to play a very large role in at least one race in North Carolina. Uh, Can you talk to that a little bit? First of all, it's interesting that the people who crime fraud are the frauds. The people who they lie about the voters, they lie about vote everybody else. That's what we found in North Carolina. And then they get caught. <laughs> uh, the very area that we ought to fix, which is absentee balloting, because that's the area where the most possibility for fraud is. They never touched in Carolina because it's primarily used by, by whites. Uh, the areas they should have increased. Same day registration, early voting, the things that actually bring more people to the polls and actually uh, are not fraudulent uh, uh, methodologies. They wanted to take away, which means, you, you know, racism and white supremacy is not just against black people. It's against America itself, because, you know, voter ID laws also hurt large numbers of white women. I did not know that. What do you mean? Because modern them, especially in the rural South. You know, their birth certificate, sometimes that when they were born was written into into Bible. Sometimes they've had change of name because of divorce and all kinds of things. I mean, we did a study on that. We had, we when we sued North Carolina and won, by the way, and that's the thing I like. Now, we didn't just march in Marl Monday, didn't just get almost a thousand people arrested, 65 percent of which were white. We didn't just put 
80, 50 and 80,000 people in the streets. We didn't just do that. We also had a legal strategy and a voter registration strategy. We registered, you know, over 10% of the unregistered voters, particularly black voters in the, in the our state. We went to court, we sued, we won, even the Supreme Court agreed. They had to agree that North Carolina's law was so surgically targeted to hurt white people that they had to speak against it, right? The other thing you said, we have more people turning out. Now that's often used was where we don't need, you know, the Voting Rights Act and protect because more people are turning out. That's just like saying, well, somebody graduated summa cum laude in a segregated school, so we don't need to have integrated schools. Right. Okay. I see. That's, that's <laughs> you, an interesting analogy. You see, the yeah. point is, yeah. it's like this. Just, I, I used to play pool. I'm pretty good. You put that on the record. I'm pretty good pool billiard player. <laughs> okay. And uh, so was Dr. King, by the way. Interesting. Uh, okay. And I um, could make trick shots. Having voter suppression, but then claiming because some people still vote. It's not really voter suppression happening. It's like tilting the table up of a pool table and somebody making that shot. That's not the point. That's not how you play pool. Right. The table shouldn't be tilted. Yeah. It doesn't matter if a few folk make the shot. That's not even the issue. So we have seen more people vote. We've also seen more voter registration, but we really don't know because for instance, some one some statistics say we're talking about some six to ten eight million people's voter suppressed. How are they suppressed? The, according to Ari Berman and his word through the new voter ID law, and it's been documented. Ari Berman wrote a book called "Give Us the Ballot." Uh-huh. Um, when in in North Carolina, the attempt to undermine voter suppression, changing uh, 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 precincts, uh, pulling precincts off college campuses because colleges campus students tend to vote more. About progressive, but but we also see the other side we don't talk about, and that's gerrymandering, racialized gerrymandering, because these legislators in the two thousand two thousand ten census drew lines, and in North Carolina, do you know they drew some of the lines through people's houses? Mm-hmm. Person in the living room is on one side, person <laughs> in the back. I mean, and 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 so what happens is you can have plus fifty percent of people vote for Democrats in a state like North Carolina. But then your congressional representation only have two. Yeah, I think in Alabama, it's about 40 percent voted Democrat and only one of seven. That's right. So racialized gerrymandering, which, by the way, began in the north to gerrymander and segregate the Polish and the Irish. We know and gerrymandering, we have what one judge called this week in North Carolina unconstitutionally constituted legislators. He, he said in North Carolina, we had unconstitutionally constituted legislature. What does that mean? What he meant was we have a legislature that was elected by gerrymandered, by districts that have been proven to be racist gerrymandered, but they didn't change them for this election. See, we're so far into it. If the Voting Rights Act had not been gutted, they would have never passed. See, voting because it would have had pre-clearance. Right. So without Shelby. Without Shelby, they can get laws pre-cleared. Those laws can be used, acted on, acted in, acted upon. And then two or three years later, the court can say they were racist. But then people got elected with them being used. And what and the bills they passed and the offices they held are not undermined. The court has expressed uh, some openness to what it calls partisan gerrymandering as opposed to racial gerrymandering. When the parties are so uh, racially divided in the South, you know, it's that six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Yeah, well, I think that's another way many times of sometimes neoliberals 
trying to go around dealing with the issue of race. The issue of gerrymandering, even when it was up north years ago, was about race. It was about different people, and it's about race in the South. And whatever you have, if you don't have a fully active voter, Voting Rights Act, if you don't have preclearance, there is no history, however you choose to do it, that states are just going to act right on their own. And the reason I know that is because of what was put in the Voting Rights Act from the beginning, and that is that if any state for 10 years, just 10 years, could not engage in proven racist voter suppression, they could have been opted out. It's been 54 <laughs> years and not one of the states under the uh, originally under the Voting Rights Act have been able to resist voter, racist voter suppression. Now, part of the rationale I understand behind Shelby versus Holder, the decision was that states who weren't part of that original mandate of the voter rights legislation, states like Pennsylvania mm -hmm. or Wisconsin or Illinois, uh, Ohio, states that have passed voter ID laws since then do not fall under the requirement of preclearance. Preclearance because they didn't have a long-term history of doing it. The preclearance part was decided early on. Now, remember, what we got in the Voting Rights Act was a compromise. It wasn't everything that Dr. King and others called for. It was a compromise. There was there are 60 states in North Carolina, I mean, 60 so counties. 60 counties. And we know in those counties there's been a history of race. So the Voting Rights Act wasn't perfect, right? but it was better than we had. So, so I guess the question is, should preclearance be expanded to all states if we were to well, pass a new voter and rights act? How would that work? This is what they should have never gutted what they had. And they could have instructed the Congress to look at the data and see if there needed to be additional states added based on the data, because it's got to be based on the data. Sure. Uh, and the history of consistent and systemic racist voter suppression. What they did, what Robert said is we've come too far now. More people are voting. We don't need this. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said to, to take away the gut section four, uh, to, to take away section four, which was the formula for how states would be included, thereby gutting the oversight of section five. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that's like putting up your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. It was the law that stopped people because they had to get pre-cleared and they couldn't pass pre-clearance. So then to declare that, oh, that the racism and the voter suppression is not as bad as it used to be. Well, right, because the law keeps preventing people to enact. It wasn't that they weren't trying. It's that, that they couldn't get past preclearance. When you put the umbrella up, the rain was obvious because in our state, the day that Shell became down, a state senator said, now that the headache has been removed. He said that now that the headache has been removed, we can move forward. And that's when the bill that was Senate Bill 666 that became House Bill 587 went from being a photo ID bill to ending same day registration and gutting early time of early voting. All of that was then replaced in that bill and it was passed without public hearings. And we filed a suit within 30 minutes of them signing, the governor signed. And it took us from 2013 to 2016 
to beat them. Wow. We beat them. And then last year, they um, passed at the end of the last session a constitutional amendment to put voter ID in the Constitution. And last week, the, the Superior Court judge said no to that. And he said, because an unconstitutionally constituted legislature should not be changing the Constitution. That was one of his rationales. Wow. Uh, to close, you talk a little bit about this in your book, The Third Reconstruction, uh, the way that politicians in the South have been able to win because of the story that they tell Southerners about themselves and the need to correct that story and tell a more true story, a truer story. Uh, what is that story that politicians and think tanks and media outlets tell Southerners about themselves? And what is the story we should be telling? Well, the story we're often told, told is that it was, you know, us against them, black against white. And they suggest, as I was reading George Wallace's. Um, and I should know we're speaking in Wallace that's Community right, College. Community College. That's <laughs> right. Hear it. And on the way, I read his inaugural speech. Yeah. And I read how he would say what he was going to do for the working man and what he was going to do for his people and the children. But in the same breath, he wasn't including black people. He was including segregation and how he was saying we don't want to be like D.C. And he was relating D.C. to being crime infested like Donald Trump relates, talks about Latino. This this stuff is not new that we're hearing today. It's just regurgitated racist vomit and poison of the past. So we're told these stories. And then when it comes to the civil rights movement. You know, we're told sometimes, uh, you know, that it was just white folk against Dr. King. Well, the reality is the movement for abolition of slavery was black and white together. The reconstruction movement that said we're going to rebuild in the South and we're going to change was white and black together. Rewriting constitutions, declaring that public education for all ought to be a state right, you know, um, Equal protection under the law ought to be not only a federal thing, but ought to be in our state constitution. Black and white together. The civil rights movement was black and white and Jewish and, and others together. The Selma to Montgomery March, black and white together. That's why Dr. King told the truth. One of the greatest speeches is, I think, the speech he did on the steps of the Alabama State House, the end of the march from Selma to Montgomery, where he tells the story. And he says, every time there's been the possibility of black and white people in the South to build a mighty coalition, to build a society for the brotherhood of man and for the beloved community. I'm paraphrasing. He says, an aristocracy sows division, feeds the white man Jim Crow for his empty stomachs to divide him from the poor black man. When in fact, the poor black man, the poor white man, if you look at history in the reconstruction time, was the moral coalition, the fusion coalition. And we need to tell that whole story. We need to tell the story about the whites and the blacks that worked together long before Selma became national center of attention. We need to tell the story about the Jewish synagogue right down there on the main street that was a part of the civil rights movement right here in Selma. We need to tell the story that, that black and white and male and female and gay and straight have always come together and imagined a way forward. Um, and we need to understand that we are in a place right now in America for the, I believe in, in one of the first times in history 
We can solve these problems. We, we could solve voter suppression. We got the technology and, and, and we could have an expanding voting right. We, we have the money. There's not a scarcity of resources. We can find money for war. We can find money. There's not a scarcity of resources to have strong public schools for everybody. We can provide health care for everybody. We don't have to keep pitting people against these southern states. Shouldn't be uh, these legislators suggesting that you expand health care is going to somehow go to these lazy people that are not working, i.e. black and brown people and lying to the people when primarily most folks are really help are white. You know, we, we, we that's why in the Poor People's Campaign, we right now put in together, we've put together an agenda and we're also putting together a budget. Some of the best economists, activists, sociologists, historians, because we're going to take on the lie of scarcity. We're going to take on the lie that poverty is the creation of poor people's problems rather than the creation of the problems of society. That poverty is not God-ordained, it's man-created. We, you know, we can deal with ecological devastation. We can have clean air, clean water. We have the technology to do that. But we're going to have to have not a partisan movement, but a moral movement. I love the fact that Dr. King never said the democratic civil rights movement <laughs> right. or the Republican civil rights movement. He just said the civil rights movement, and he laid it out in moral terms, as all those before him. We need a moral movement that says budgets are moral issues. Education is a moral issue. Racist voter suppression is a moral issue. Unnecessary mass incarceration is a moral issue. Attacks on our immigrant community, denying indigenous people rights. Many of our indigenous community, I visited them in Arizona, are still existing on reservations under rules that were created by treaties that they should have never signed in war times in the 1800s. I believe that we can solve this, but we can't solve it staying apart. And I believe the South is critical. Coming together in the South, if you're black and you're poor and can't pay your light bill, you're white and you're poor and can't pay your light bill, Latino, Asian, Native. If your lights go out, we all black in the dark. If you can't feed your child, they don't cry black. They don't cry white. They cry pain, they cry hunger. The South needs labor rights. We need higher wages. We don't need, a, we don't need a, a jobs and low wages. You know, so slavery was full employment <laughs> with no right. wages. Right. You know, but we're not going to get there following the mythology that it was always pitted against. There's always been, even in the South, a remnant of people who knew better. And right now, with remigration of African-Americans and immigration, the South is now 40 percent African-American. I've traveled in Mississippi, Louisiana and poor people's campaign. Everywhere we go, the house is full of white and black people together and Latino people. I was in Mississippi recently. One white lady said, I grew up with this stuff and it's time for it to stop. And she wasn't just talking about calling somebody the N-word. She was talking about politicians pitting people against one another and then using their power to do nothing but give tax cuts to the wealth mm-hmm. and to disable the democracy so people can rob it of its resources. And, and because the language of left versus right Democrat versus Republican, liberal versus conservative is too pure, it's too weak, it's too anemic to address the deep problems that our society faces that we can address. Not if we have the resources, but if we have the moral will because the resources are there. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Barber. Well, that's the episode, folks. Thank you to the Reverend Dr. Barber for his time, and thank you for your time listening. This episode was produced and hosted by yours truly, with additional edits by Reckon Radio producer Alexander Ritchie. The show's theme song, Dereconstructed, is produced by Sub Pop Records. It was written and performed by Lee Baines III and the Glory Fires. If you like our show, please subscribe and give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share the show with your friends. Follow Reckon on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or go to al.com slash Reckon to sign up for our newsletters to stay up to date on all the latest news in Alabama and around the South. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. 